0: Last week we began looking together at how we might become irresistible to God. And we said last week we looked at David and we, we looked at why was David so different? Why did God call David out from all those other people, ask him to become king? Was it What was it that God saw in David? Because, quite frankly, he wasn't a very good guy, was he? He was uh, guilty of murder, he was... If he'd have been living in the United Kingdom, he'd been in prison. He'd have a life sentence for what he'd done. He's not the kind of guy that you'd put up on a pedestal and say, now this is the guy that we should follow. His example. Here's a, a wonderful Christian man. Here's a wonderful example of how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, how to follow God. When you actually look at what he did, who he was, you think, well, he's not the kind of guy that I really want to follow. Thanks very much. He's not the sort of got the kind of character. So what is it that God saw in him? And we realize that God, or the thing that separated David from, from perhaps all of us is the depth of his hunger for the presence of God. That out of everything, he had this, present, this hunger for God. And even when he messed up so many times, he would say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've messed up again, but that doesn't, doesn't squash, that doesn't put out the hunger that's inside of me. The fire that's within me, it still burns brightly and whatever, uh, whatever consequence there is to what, what I've done, Lord, I'm going to leave that with you to sort out. And I'm just going to carry on hungering and thirsting for you. And because of that openness in his life, God was able to use him. And we said the first thing, if we want to become irresistible to God, is we need to have that same kind of hunger for the things of God That we have a a hunger for whatever God wants to do in us, what God wants to do through us. What God wants to do in his church, what God wants to do through his church. And it's not about my will, but about his will in everything. That was last week. That's what we kind of looked at through Psalm 63 last week. But this week, the second thing we need if we're going to become irresistible to God, if we're going to be the kind of bride of Christ that God wants us to be, is that we need to know who we are. Somebody said, when you're on your knees, that is who you truly are. It's true, isn't it? When you're down there on your knees, all alone, nobody else is around you, and you it's just between you and God, that truly, what is coming out of you, what is in your life, what is in your heart, that's truly who you really are. Not the facade that you put on the outside. That's what we give to other people. But when we're with God in that, that closed room, that's really who we are before God. That's who we are on the inside. And I want to ask you today, what do you think God sees when he looks at you? As God looks down on you this morning, what does he really see inside of you? Because he gets right past that facade. He says, well, you're wearing you know, a really cool outfit, David know that? You know, you're able to speak, okay. You're not really frightened any longer of standing up in front of groups of people and talking, and you're okay. But really, when God looks at me, what does he really see? He doesn't see that, does he? That's just the facade. He doesn't even see the label on the door, Reverend David. That's that's immaterial to God. What he sees is what's going on inside of me, what's going on in my heart, what I don't show to most of you. Because you don't want me coming up here Sunday by Sunday and saying, let me really tell you what's going on in my life. And certainly, my wife doesn't want that to happen either. Like if she was sitting there, she'd go, what are you saying? Don't say that. And when you grew up, you know, one of the things I grew up with, my parents used to always say, I don't know if they said it to you, but what happens in the home stays in the home. Do you still say that to your children? Right? What happens in the home stays. In other words, you put this facade on. I don't care what's going on in our house, but no one else is to know. I'm going, is it going to be that bad? Like, surely. You know, but that's the thing. We put these things on so that people see us in a different light. But God sees past that. And I want you to think for a moment. What do you think he sees in you right now as he looks at you? As he clears away all that facade that you put on, all the makeup that we stick on the outside, when he looks into your heart and into your life, what does he really see in you today, right now? Think about it for a moment. What does he see? If You're married, you've got a really good friend, maybe you want to go and ask them after the service or this week, what is it you think God sees in me? How does he look at me? But how do you think he looks at you today? Do you think he's angry with you? Do you think he's disappointed in you? Do you think he's dancing a little jig up there somewhere because he's really pleased and happy? What do you think God sees in you when he looks right at you? Because you see, sometimes we can have, I think most of the time we have the wrong image of how God is really looking at us. We we think he sees us in a particular way because we filter that mainly through how we see ourselves. And we think God must see us in the same way that I do. And we get a wrong image of how God truly sees us. Now turn in your Bible to Philippians. Because this morning we're going to look at exactly what the Bible says about how God sees you and how God sees me. Let's look at this. There's so many passages we could go to that would would show different things. But I want to pick up just four things this morning on how God sees us. And how he's looking at you today. Philippians chapter 1. Here's Paul, he's in prison. He writes back to the church in Philippi. And beginning at verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's just unpack that because that's a lot of words. But let's just stop for a moment and think about, it shows us, Paul is teaching us here about how God truly looks at us. Look first in verse 5 he says the first thing that god sees in us that we are it says partners in the gospel because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now we are partners in the gospel when god looks at you he sees you as a partner in the gospel now what does that mean well yesterday i had a partner we we're on the tennis courts team trinity You'll be proud of us. Team Trinity went out there. Now, we look cool. There's no doubt about it. We had flashy shirts on, right? Mike, I almost asked him to wear his shirt today, but he had this fluorescent green back to his shirt. It would glow in the dark. You could play at nighttime with a shirt like that. I had a fluorescent orange shirt on, same style. We looked a picture. Team Trinity, We were partners, you could tell we were partners because we were dressed the same way. He had his baseball cap on, I had my baseball cap on. He took his baseball cap off, I took my baseball cap off. We were partners together on that tennis court. And we were there responsible for upholding the high name of Trinity Church in our local community. This was serious tennis we're talking about. That's where we were yesterday morning. Now you could tell we were partners because we dressed like partners. If we were going to lose, we were going to lose with class. We weren't just going to be shabby. Everybody else came and just cut off trousers and this, that. We looked classy. So you knew we were partners together. Secondly, you knew we were partners because we stood on the same side of the tennis court. That always helps when you're playing together. We were partners because we stood side by side against the opposition who were mean. They were were good tennis players. Ready for Wimbledon, I think. I'm only building this up because we actually won in the end. But anyway, right, as if you couldn't tell. So we were there together side by side. So we weren't only partners because we looked like partners. We were partners because we actually played like partners together. We stood on the same side. We weren't battling against each other, but we were helping one another. So when Mike missed the ball, I ran round the back and I hit it. When I missed the ball and swung wildly in the air and it went over my head and I looked a complete idiot, he ran round the back and he hit it back over. So every mistake I made, Mike covered for me and every mistake Mike made, I tried to cover for him. And we worked together. That's why my legs are sore today, because there were so many mistakes that we made. But we worked hard together not only that, we try to encourage one another. Normally, if I'm playing against Mike, we spend the, next, the whole time just trying to uh, get inside one another's heads and kind of put each other off, which is why sometimes... He's better at doing it than I am, which is why sometimes I just put my headphones on so I can't hear him at all. And I play listening to worship music. It drives him nuts because I'm not even listening. I'm just singing away and hitting the ball. But we were on the same team so there was no need to do that. So I was going, "Come on, mate, you can do this." I, I just want four aces straight down the middle. Come on, you can do this! And bang, 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 bang. That wasn't quite that easy, but you know. But we were encouraging one another as we played together. Why? Because we were partners. We weren't in opposition. And so there was all these different ways in which we showed the partnership together. If we were playing against each other, it would have been a very different morning. But we played. So we shot. We had the same aim, to humiliate the opposition and to fly the flag of Team Trinity high again in our community for 2015. So we were going the same way. We were shooting the same way. We were helping one another. We were covering. We were intercepting. We were encouraging. We were supporting one another. And when the time got tough and we were losing, we started losing together. And we said, come on, we can win this. And we pulled ourselves back up and we went on eventually to win the game of tennis because we did it as partners. And Jesus Christ, the Bible says, in the same way, we are in partnership with Christ in the gospel. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, we are partners in the same way with Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. What that means is that Jesus Christ is on your team. He's standing right next to you. It wasn't Mike there, it's Jesus Christ there in the gospel. He's standing there with me. What's he doing? He's encouraging me. He's helping me. I'm helping it. We're shooting in the same direction. We have the same aim. We are there encouraging one another. I'm there offering praise and worship of Jesus and he's there saying, Come on, David, I can do it through you. I can help you. We're working at this together. We're going to stand and we're going to fall together. We're going to look the part. We're going to, I'm going to cover for you every time you mess up. And I say, yeah, I'll cover for you, but you never mess up. So that's, an, you know, because Christ is there. Do you get the picture? He's right there with us. That's what it means to have a partnership, that we're working together with Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel. We're not trying to do it on our own. We're not out there in a singles game. We're in a game of doubles. But in fact, we're in more than a game of doubles. Because we're not only in partnership with Jesus Christ, but we're in partnership with one another too. So it's not just me and Jesus standing there. It's all of us standing there with Christ. We have a massive team called the family of God that is working together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, "We are chosen." In 2 Corinthians 5:20, it talks about us being Christ's ambassadors. Let's have a quick look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he's saying, we're, We are with God. We're here as ambassadors. He has chosen us to work with Him. Do you remember in the old uh, kids' playground in primary school? Used to be standing there, let's pick teams. And two captains were always there, and you're always picked on one side or the other. It's like Jesus has said, You know what? I want you and you and you and you and you and you. You're going to be on my team. We're going to play together. We're going to work together for the sake of the gospel. We're going to get the message of Jesus Christ out into our world. And I am choosing you because I know the gifts and abilities that you have. I know the character, the temperament that you have. And you fit perfectly in this team. And we're going to work together with Christ standing right next to us in partnership for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says when when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees us as a partner in the gospel. That's why in the church, unity is so vital. You know the last thing that Jesus said pretty much to his disciples? Be united. Be together. John 17, he says to his disciples this, my prayer is not for them alone, that's the disciples, but I pray also for all those who will believe through their message, that's you and me, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. He's saying, We need to be united together. Why? Because we're on the same team together, we're partners together in sharing the gospel. Why is it that the enemy will spend all his energy and time in trying to rip churches apart, rip the kingdom of God apart? Why is it that he wants us to fall out over the most ridiculous kind of things? Because they know that if we on the same team start getting at one another, if we start looking at one another instead of focusing on our aim, then we're not going to win. We're not going to get anywhere. If I started having a go at Mike yesterday or he started having a go at me going, oh, David, that was, that was useless. What kind of player do you think you are? I don't want to play with you anymore. You're useless. You can't even serve properly. You can't hit anything back. We wouldn't have won because I said, well, I don't really want to play with you. You might look good, but hey, you know, and then what happens? You start falling apart. You see that in the World Cup, don't you, all the time. It's a French team a few years ago, wasn't it? Internal fighting, they won it four years before. Didn't even win a game the next time because they were all superstars now with big egos and all fighting one another. The English teams like that every time, so we won't go there. Dutch team, best team never to have won the World Cup. Why? Because they're all too busy fighting each other, saying, give me the ball and I'm gonna score. No, you give me the ball, I'm gonna score. And then none of them score. Right? it's the same with us in the church we need to be united together we have to work at being united encouraging one another so that the gospel message can be brought out into the kingdom of God into where God wants it to go we're on the same side together if we start looking at one another getting irritated with one another then the gospel ceases to be sent out there I've told you before, you know, I learned that so often early in my life when I was in Africa, when I was in Uganda. We had a team. There were six people. There was two from the UK, two from Canada, two from the United States. And we were partnered up with six other Ugandan partners and one Ugandan team leader. When I went there, I said, Lord, I want to see the results. I want to see your power in action. I want to see 100 people this year come to know Jesus Christ for the first time. Within the first two months, over 100 people had come to know Jesus Christ. It was amazing. They were just like villages turning to Christ. People walking 20 miles to come said, I hear that you know about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. And we were telling them, and their lives were being transformed. Do you know what happened after that two months, three months? We started getting irritated with one another on the team. I don't like the way you brush your teeth. I don't like the way you do this. I don't like the way you do that. And we started looking at one another. Instead of looking out to the field that was there, to the harvest that was possible, we started turning against one another and going, oh, you're really irritating me. Why do, why do you eat like that? Why don't you just shovel it in with it? Why don't you eat properly like us English people? You know, And we started just nitpicking over the most ridiculous kind of things. Do you know what happened? The harvest dried up like that. Not a single person came to know Jesus Christ. We were doing exactly the same things that we were doing almost the day before. But where there was disunity amongst us, the power of God's Spirit didn't work. It didn't flow. And we were going out preaching the same message, helping people in the same way with no results. And that's what will happen if there is disunity. When there is unity together, when you're working with Christ For the same objective, you will see the results. When you start looking towards one another, the results will dry up. Why do you think the church is so ineffective today? It's Because of this disunity that is so rife within the church, particularly in the West. They're arguing over all kinds of different things. That's not the things of God. And instead of looking out to the harvest field that's out there, they're looking at one another. And God says, I can't, I, can't, I can't use that. That's not my bride. That's not the kind of people that I want to be, that I can use to bring the message of love and reconciliation to a world that needs to hear it. Look at them. They're too busy fighting with one another. And in that year in Uganda, it wasn't until we finally, after about six months later, got our act together and forgave one another and was reconciled together that we started to see the power of God back at work. Didn't do anything different in those six months. But there was no results. And then finally, when we came with that kind of humility and said, you know what? This is ridiculous. We need to just forgive each other. We need to just come together in unity again. Then we started to see the power of God back at work and other people coming to know Jesus. We need to see that. We need to experience that. We need to have that in our lives. We need to recognize that we are partners In the gospel. And so unity. Unity is so important. There's no unity. There's no partnership. If there's no partnership, there's no message being shared. And then there's no lives being transformed by Jesus Christ. The first thing we need is unity. That's what Paul says here because of the partnership we have in the gospel. But look down in verse 6. He says, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love that verse. You know why? Because it says that we are in a process. That you and I are not complete. Isn't that fantastic? That God hasn't finished his work in you or in me. Which means I am going to mess it up. And guess what? You guys are going to mess it up too. Why? Because we are not complete yet. We have a long, long way to go before God completes everything within us. Which means that He is still working in us and molding us and making us how He wants us to be, but none of us are complete. Therefore, we should not expect perfection within each one of us. We are going to mess up. How many people have left churches Because somebody messed up and they go, well, they they messed it up. I'm leaving. Well, duh. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to get it wrong. Why? Because we are not complete yet. I am not like Jesus Christ. I do not have the same character as Jesus Christ. I'm on a journey and the Spirit of God is helping me and continually trying to transform me, but I'm not there yet. And guess what? I never will be there until I meet him face to face. So you can forgive me when I mess up, and I need to forgive you when you mess up, because you're going to, and so am I, right? Because we are not yet complete, but we are being completed by Christ, which means what? It means that Christ is the responsible one for completing us is the one that is making us. In Jeremiah 18, it talks about the potter. Beautiful passage of scripture. Lump of clay. And who is it that molds the clay? The clay itself? No. The potter. He sticks the clay on that turntable, on that wheel, and he molds it into whatever he wants it to be. And God is doing the same for you and for me. He said, David, you're a lump of clay. I'm going to put you here and I'm going to use my hands to shape you how I want you to be. And you're not going to be the same as anybody else because I'm going to make you unique. And I'm going to make everybody unique. But I'm going to make them unique in the way that I want them to be, not in the way that you want them to be. You know, so often I hear people, they come and they say, you know, I need to do this. I've got to do that. I have to... An eye comes right in the middle of everything. And I'm going, why? It's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be open to God to allow him to shape you. That's it. Let him shape you in the way he wants you to be. But he's not going to shape you if you say, no, I don't want to be touched by you. Thanks very much. No, 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 no. God, I don't want you to shape me anyway. Like, just leave me alone. God says, okay, I'll leave you alone. And you'll be spinning on that little wheel, but you won't be doing anything. It's only, God says, only, I'm only going to come on you and put my hands on you and shape you how I want you to be when you let me. That's the freedom. That's the love that God has for us. And he says, I'm only going to do that when you let me do it. So we need to wake up. We need to say, Lord, today, shape me today. Continue that process of transformation today. Because I'm not there yet and I need more shaping. I need more molding by you so that one day I will be complete. One day, you know, or today you're going to make me slightly more beautiful. Slightly more like Jesus Christ. Today I give you permission to mold me in the way you want me to be molded by you. Put your hands on me, Lord, and mold me like like a potter molding that clay. Until I am finished. And that's the second thing we need to remember, that we will be completed by Christ, but we need to stop trying to mold ourselves. We can't do that. We need to let him mold us. I came across an illustration of that by a guy called Micah J. Murray. He wrote the following. It's kind of like a diary, uh, and he wrote this in his journal. He said, God, sometimes I feel like I'm not a good Christian in your eyes. Like you're a father disappointed in me, frustrated, wishing I would do more, be more. And I wonder, are you proud of me? Am I a good Christian? Do I make you smile? I don't want to fail. I don't want to disappoint you. And sometimes I feel like I'm not as spiritual as I used to be. I'm afraid that I'll slip away from you, slowly fade and become lost. I don't want this. Can I stop trying to earn your love? Can I stop trying to be a good Christian? Then he wrote a few years later, he said, I read through my Bible in a year, more times than I can remember. Once I spent New Year's Eve party reading the entire book of Revelation, beating the deadline by 30 minutes. Sounds like the life and soul of a party, doesn't he? He said, I memorized several books of the New Testament. I was an all-star Bible quizzer. I attended teen camps. I went forward at nearly every invitation I got, not only to get saved because i have been saved when I was nine years old, but to continually rededicate my life to God, to repent of all my unconfessed sins, to dedicate my life to full-time Christian ministry. He said, I carried tracts with me, and I tried to get strangers saved at parades, at picnics, at petrol stations. Anywhere I could, I would give them a tract. I spent three years in discipleship and ministry after I had finished schooling, reading the Bible, searching for new insights, memorizing verses, claiming God's promises, trying to be on fire for the Lord. I attempted to even stifle my desires in my heart that competed with God for my affections. My aching for friends, for beaches, for mountains, for music, for a girl by my side, I stuffed them inside. I repented. I tried to find my delight only in God. He said, I raise my hand when the preacher asked, who will commit to pray for an hour a day, every day for the rest of their life? I raise my hand every time a preacher asked us to make a commitment. Really? If there was a way to be a better Christian, I would do it, no matter the cost. I wanted so desperately to please God. He said this, in the summer, and when we're on the tail end of a weekend camping trip, We went to this uh, burger place because you could get large burgers. And I sat across a little table from my future father-in-law just a few months before my wedding. And over burgers and curly fries, I told him all the worries and fears I carried in my heart. He said, I feel like I'm not a very good Christian anymore. I was in Bible college now, but constantly felt like I was disappointing God. I had been years since the last time I'd raised my hands and made a commitment to be a better Christian, and I just wasn't on fire anymore, and it worried me. I'm not as spiritual as I used to be, I said. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray as much as I should. I'm more worldly. He looked at me, and he shook his head. He said, you're right. You've changed. You're yet less judgmental now, and you're more loving. Right now, you're more like Jesus than I've ever seen you be." I didn't believe him. There is no fear in love. He said but fear has wrapped itself around him like a chain. Whenever I paused to hear the voice of the father only condemnation echoed in my heart. Am I good enough for you yet? That question tormented me. When I knelt to pray when I came out of my mouth was stammering apologies for my inconsistency. I nearly gave up on reading my Bible. All I could think about was the days that I hadn't read it. All the days I had disappointed God. He said, I thought, always thought that it was the big moments that defined my faith. The altar calls, the church retreats, the commitments, the kind of things you write back in, in the back of your Bible and remember later on. But it didn't happen that way. I couldn't tell you the day I made a decision when I gave up on being a good Christian. The best way I can tell you is that I was drowning, desperately thrashing against the water that was slowly, and I was slowly falling limp. I drifted lifelessly. And then he saved me all over again, as if for the first time. He said, I don't want to be a good Christian anymore. The constant worrying if I'm good enough, the nagging fear that I'm not, the guilt, those miserable years. But this, this is life. I've given up on trying to please God, on being good enough for Him. I've given up on earning His love, but it fills my heart anyway. This is freedom. Now I'm falling over and over again into the love that will not let me go. I can feel the Father's smile, and I'm smiling too. That's what it means to be completed by Christ. We can't complete ourselves. Christ has to do the work in us. So many people come to me and they say, I'm really trying. And I just say, Stop trying. Just let you can't do it. Let God do it in you. He is the one that is responsible for completing you. Open yourself up to him, say, Lord, here I am. Just do that work in me. Let me give you my life so that you can mold me how you want me to be. Rather than constantly trying and trying and trying to be a better Christian and always, always failing. Christ is the one, as the Bible says here in Philippians, who will complete you. You cannot complete yourself. We need to learn to live in that way. Look at the third thing in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We are connected through Christ. We have a family connection. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are chosen by God. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Chosen by him. He has handpicked us. To be sharers, partakers in God's grace. It's by grace that we come into the family of God. We cannot come any other way, only through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And therefore, we are connected. We're connected because He has chosen each one of us to be part of that family. We don't get to choose, He chooses. And He says, These are the people I want in my family. These are the people I'm going to speak to. These are the people I am going to bring. You are a chosen people, he says, a holy nation. He has chosen you and chosen me. So we're sharers together of God's grace because we're all part of that family and the only way to become part of that family is through the grace of God. But more than that, we are sharers of God's grace because we experience the blessings of grace in our lives. There's a personal connection We have that restored relationship with God. Through grace, through what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have that restored relationship with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with all of creation. That's what he has done for us. And so we experience all the blessings of God because of that restoration. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Galatians 6, the fruits of the Spirit but so many more of the blessings of God that we receive because we are sharers in God's grace. He says, because I've accepted you into the family, he says, your heirs, co-heirs with Christ, you have all all the blessings that Christ can bring. Every single one. Ask, you'll receive. Seek, you're going to find. Knock, the door's going to be opened. You have the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. You have the power of God's church supporting and encouraging you and helping you through this journey of life. We have every single blessing that Christ can give, peace in our hearts, forgiveness for all the times we mess up. We have all these things and so many more because we are sharers of God's grace. And we're sharers also because he has asked us to go and take that message to other people. He says, tell others, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. Tell other people about the grace of Jesus Christ as well, about what God has done for them. Don't just keep it to yourself. It's like Christ has given us the most precious gift that there is. There is no greater gift, a relationship back with God. He's given it to you and to me. And he said, here it is. It's like you've got a winning lottery ticket. And he says, now, it's not for you. You've already got yours. But I want you to go give it to someone else. I wonder how many people, if you went through Harrow and you said, here's a winning lottery ticket, there's a million pounds on this. I wonder, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? See, how many people go, you've got to be kidding me. You're not just going to give me that. You don't even know who I am. I might try it one day. You know. First, I've got to win the million. But anyway, right? First, I've got to buy a ticket. I've never done that before. So, But you imagine it. You're handing out this ticket to people and you're going like, here it is. This is a million pound in here. It's yours. All you've got to do is take the ticket, go cash it in. I wonder how many people would seriously believe you. Or they would just go like, you're having a laugh. This just doesn't happen. Especially in Harrow. It doesn't happen in Harrow. No one's going to do that. But you give it to them. But we have, we have that right relationship with Jesus Christ. We have grace. We have what it means to be in that. We know the access. We know that we know what it is because Christ has done it in you and in me. And we have that message within us and we need to go and take that message and say to people, you know what? You know the kind of peace? You know the kind of love that you can feel? God wants you to feel that too. Let me just share it with you. If they say, no, no, I don't want that, that's fine. I'm not going to force it on them. I'm not going to stick that... Ticket in there. You're going to have it anyway. Take it. You know? No. But we offer it to people, and we say, "Let me just tell you about how much God loves you and wants a relationship with you. Let me tell you about all the things that God wants to do in your life. Let me just tell you about the difference that God can make in your life. That's what it has. That's what grace is. It's expressing. We are sharers in God's grace. Because we can share it with one another just as we share it together. And we can go and tell people about how amazing God truly is. And lastly, look at this. Verses 9 to 11, he said, and this is my prayer. It's interesting when Paul prays. Paul never prays for material things. Have you notice that, he always prays for spiritual things. I wonder if it's a challenge to us so often in our prayers. But he says, that I pray. this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's he saying? He says, I want you to be filled with more and more with the character of God. I want you to show love more and more and more each day. It's part of that molding of Christ in us. I'm going to pray that Christ's love will so fill you that you will be just bursting over with the love of Jesus Christ more and more. And how are you going to show it? You're going to show it through knowledge, more knowledge, and more depth of insight. In other words, you're going to show it in more and more appropriate ways to the people around you. Because you'll have knowledge and you'll have insight into their lives, knowledge of how to, how to show that love in appropriate ways and insight into their lives so that you know exactly the kind of loving thing that you need to do, the loving words that you need to say, the loving actions that you need to give that will make a real impact and a real difference in their lives. That's what I'm going to ask God to fill you with, that you will be more and more like Jesus Christ. Christ, he just went around and showed the love of God in the right way, or every single time, didn't he? People would come to him with one issue, and he wouldn't even look at that issue, and he'd go straight to the heart of their issues, the heart of their problems, the heart of what they really needed, and say, this is what you really need. Let me just give this to you in a loving way. Let me just challenge you in a loving way. He says we're going to have more discernment. Discernment, it says. Discernment in holiness and a right relationship with God. God. You may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of a right relationship with God, that is, that comes through Jesus Christ. So he's, he's praying that we have a, a right kind of relationship with God, that we are holy, that we stand before God as we should do in that right kind of relationship. And when we have love and a right relationship with him, what, what is the result? Is praise. Thankfulness for who we are in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying the fourth characteristic that we will show in our lives is more and more of that same character of Jesus Christ love, discernment, praise working in us and through us. Who are you in Christ? How does God see you today? You know how God sees you. The Bible says He sees you as a partner in the gospel. He's chosen you. He's standing right next to you, and He's saying, "David, we got work to do. We're partnering together in this with everybody. We're all here together. Look around you at this great cloud of witnesses. We're working together for the sake of the gospel. Because those that are not yet in partnership with us are going to be called. Because I'm going to use you guys." to go and call them, and they're going to come over and work with us. They're going to join the team. They're going to be partners too. He says we're partners in the gospel. That's what he sees when he looks at you. He says, you know what else I see? I see someone that is being steadily transformed by God, by Christ, by the Spirit of God. David, you're not there yet. But you know what? You're on the journey. And every time you open yourself up to me, you allow me to come in and contribute transform you a little bit more. Let me keep on doing that work. So David, I don't expect you to be perfect because you're you're not completely transformed yet. You're not the guy that I really, really want you to be, but I'm getting there with you. Just open yourself up and let me do more and more work in you. God looks at you and he says, you know what? You're a sharer of the grace. You're a sharer of what I have done and accomplished through my son Jesus Christ. He looks on you and he says, you're there. You have all the blessings that I can give because you are a sharer in the grace of God. You are been sealed by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so I can pour out my blessing into you. And he said, and when I do that, I'm going to fill you more and more and more with the character of God. That's what God sees in you today. What do you see in yourself when you look in the mirror? What do you see in yourself? Because we need to see that in us. So often we look at ourselves and go like that guy. We go, oh man, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh Lord, you know, like, oh, I've not been a Christian very long. Lord, I'm kind of shallow. I'm not that deep in my faith. Lord, I've not had a chance to get a Bible college. Lord, I can't do... And we have this negative image of ourselves. That is put there, not by God, but by ourselves or by the enemy. Because it crushes us and it holds us back and it stops us realizing everything that Christ wants to do in us and through us. Remind yourself constantly, write it down, re listen, get, get the notes out, and say, This is what I am. And every time that thought, those negative thoughts come into your head, say, You know what? That is not me. That is not what God sees in me right now. He sees me as a partner in the gospel. He sees me as someone that is saved by grace. He sees me as someone who is not complete, but is on a journey, and he is going to complete me. He sees me as someone who is shining out imperfectly, yes, but still shining out the character of God to the world around. That's what he sees in you, and that's what we need to have in our heads and in our hearts, because when that is in you, That will transform you in who you are. Because you will no longer say when he says, David, go do this. You will no longer say, no, I can't do that. Sorry, that's how I might Send someone else. You'll say, you know what? If you believe me, if you are in me that much, if that's really what you think in me, then yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. I'm going to live how you want me to live in the freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. He says, you and me are the bride of Christ. You know when you see your bride, you don't sit there, you don't stand there. I didn't stand there when Inica was coming down the aisle and going, well, wow. you know, hair's a bit of a mess. You know, she's got a funny walk. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't start criticizing her. I didn't start analyzing her to try and pick faults in her. What was I standing there doing, apart from shaking like crazy? I was going... I can't believe I'm going to stand before God and marry this most beautiful woman. I can't believe that God has brought this person to spend the rest of their life with me. I can't believe it. I'm the most fortunate, the luckiest guy, the most blessed guy ever to exist. That's what I thought. And that's what Christ, when he looks at you and looks at me, thinks about us. We are the bride of Christ. He's not looking at us going, Oh, I'm going to find fault in this bride. He's looking at us going, man, this is the most beautiful bride. This is the most beautiful bride that has ever existed in this planet because this is the bride of Jesus Christ. He looks at the positive and he asks us to do the same. We had two questions. What does God think about you? What do you think? Think about yourself when you look at yourself. And if those two are not the same as they should be, you need to decide which one you're going to follow today. There's a famous quote by Marianne Williamson, made famous by Nelson Mandela. He said this, Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. So we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant and gorgeous and talented and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. She also said this, she said, Love is what we're born with. Fear is what we learn." The spiritual journey is the unlearning of fear and prejudices and the acceptance of love back into our hearts. God is saying to you and to me today, which image are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the image that you have of yourself? Or are you going to follow the image that God has, the true image of how he looks at you today? How he wants to bless you. How he wants to fill you. How he wants to come and be a partner with you. How he looks at you. Because that is the truth of who you truly are. And that will define who you are to others around you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you do not look at us in the same way that so often we look at ourselves. You see us as partners with you. You see us as people that you have chosen to be with you in the proclamation of the gospel, in the sharing of the love of Jesus Christ, in showing the gifts and the fruits of your spirit to others around us, in bringing your kingdom, in bringing in the harvest. You have chosen us. And so you look at us as your bride. How beautiful we are. You don't see us with all the negativity that we see ourselves or we look at one another. You see us with that purity because you have created us and made us. You see the potential that you've placed within us, that you're working towards in each of our lives. Lord, you love us. With a love that knows no bounds. And Lord, we need to get that into our minds and into our hearts and into our lives. So that when that negativity comes in our mind, we can say, get out of there. Because that is not the truth. The truth is who I am in Jesus Christ. That I am loved, that I am saved, that I am part of the kingdom of God, that I am with you for all eternity because I am your bride. I am your partner in the gospel. I want to thank you. And I want to ask that you would constantly remind us of these words today, of the truth of who we are in you. So that when we put ourselves down or others put us down or whatever tries to put in us a different message, your message of who we are in you will come shining through. Always. Because out of that, Lord, that gives us the freedom and the liberty and the strength and the courage to be who we are meant to be. So I thank you and I praise you. Lord, speak to each one of us. Continually remind us. May your spirit continually shout that message in our ears day by day. As you continue to mold us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for these words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi all those years ago, and that you still speak to us today. For We pray in Christ's name. Amen.